Chapter 10. Poltava, Karl Twelfth, and Mazeppa. Poltava, June 2019. Absurdly, I can clearly hear traffic through the trees. It can't be more than a hundred or so metres away. Two hundred at most. It's not like I'm lost in the Amazon rainforest, but the situation is still disconcerting. From the one-time battleground a few kilometres north of Poltava, I walked down to the obelisk that was erected at the site of Redoubt No. 8 and took a shortcut through an area of woodland to No. 3. It was here that, come the dawn of the 28th of June 1709, the Swedish campaign against the Russian Tsar met an early and decisive setback. But before I know it, my shortcut has turned into something else. A maze of increasingly tangled brambles, strange banks rising tall and straight, and sudden pits amongst the trees block my way. The vegetation grows denser, ensnares me, forces me to turn back. A recoiling branch then strikes me in the face and I rub my stinging cheek. I step on with firmer resolve. A few minutes later, I stumble into a hole almost as deep as my knees. I stand there still, feeling like a fool. Who has dug pits in these woods? Are they Carolean graves? Something from the Second World War? Returning the same way is out of the question. I've followed my nose in a winding southeasterly direction and there is no path to find my way back to. Just thick undergrowth and these weird earthworks. I step out. Insects are running riot under my shirt. Wherever I look, thorns, nettles, scrub and thin, sinuous branches. I pick up my pace in a determined attempt to leave the trees. This is a mistake. I fall again into another hole, deeper this time. Badly scrape my shin. I groan, swear and palpate. No. Nothing broken. Nothing sprained. I get up and struggle on. Sticky in the 28-degree heat, I start to hum nervously to keep my rising panic in check. If I break a leg and can't drag myself out, no one will hear me. One comfort is that I won't be the only Swede to have met his end on these fields north of Poltava. In the year 1700, Karl, Charles Twelfth, was the ruler of a Sweden that had grown into a European great power. But the Great Northern War was looming. Denmark, Saxony-Poland and Russia attacked different Swedish possessions around the Baltic. During the year, Karl XII's troops fought with Danish, Saxon and Polish forces and at the end of November attacked the Russians who were laying siege to the Swedish fortification at Narva in Estonia. With a snowy wind in its back, the Swedish army sent off 37,000 Russian soldiers with an efficiency that would resound throughout the continent. The warrior king's tactical ingenuity became the stuff of legend, and the military project continued. During the Polish campaign of 1704, Karl XII also managed to take Lemberg, Lviv, a task that had bested many other military leaders before him. The king's advance with 60,000 men on Moscow in 1708 would prove more of a challenge, however. The Tsar's forces retreated, and the Swedes found themselves facing scorched earth and biting cold that claimed an ever greater number of infantry and cavalry lives. A Russian classic. 
let the climate, distance and terrain do the dirty work. Thus had many an invading army been ground down. But Karl XII was not going to let the Tsar get away with it. Regroup! The Heart of Darkness was to be attacked from the south. Karl XII embarked on a year-long circumventing march through East Prussia, Poland, and onward towards the east in search of one final decisive showdown with the Tsar. But his opponent did not come to confront him. The winter was bleak. In the spring of 1709, there were fewer than 20,000 soldiers left in the Swedish army. It boded ill, of course. But in the previous July, only 12,500 Karelians had managed to defeat almost 40,000 Russian troops in Holochian, in what is now Belarus. In central Ukraine, there was also a new ally in the form of Ivan Mazepa's Cossacks, eager to take on Peter the Great. In the south, the Crimean Tatars could probably also be mobilised. And progress was being made by the advancing, village-burning, marching Karelians. In March 1709, they were joined by between three and four thousand Cossacks. And in May, Karl XII arrived in the city of Poltava, to which he promptly laid siege. Finally, the Tsar's army arrived. They set up camp by the Vorskla River a few kilometres north of the city and erected a series of fortifications, redoubts ready to break up attacking forces. The moment of truth was approaching. 18,000 Swedes plus Cossacks faced 50,000 Russians. For a Viking, it was child's play. Wasn't it? I've brushed off the insects, taken a deep breath, buttoned my shirt to the top, and must now forge ahead and out of the woods. But I need a strategy. No circumventing the trees. That will no longer lead me in the right direction. I now force my way through the undergrowth, meter by meter, making a beeline for the field to the northwest from where I came. The branches are more impenetrable than ever, but I am now watching every step, paying attention to everything that might be a pit. I push my way along, wading through nettles, bending aside canes, avoiding only the thorns. And when things are looking their gloomiest, the light suddenly opens onto the field ahead of me. I struggle on and step out into the sunshine, where paths and roads stretch out under the afternoon light, open and welcoming. A hundred metres to the northwest runs a parallel path along which a woman strolls with a pram. Yeah, I'm a pathetic figure. The following day, 27th of June 2019, is the 310th anniversary of the Battle of Poltava. When I arrive at the site of the main battle, a small procession of a score of people troop out of the war museum led by a woman with a large bouquet and three men dressed as soldiers, a Karelian in blue, a Cossack in white and a Russian in red. The Russian and the Swede step up to the monument to lay flowers at its stylish Swedish inscription, Time Heals Wounds. Clever thinking. But not all wounds. Wounds, though. At least, the scratches on my face. A woman from the museum gives a talk on the legacy of history and I listen with a straight back, applauding at all the right places. 
It is a strange experience to stand beneath solemn Swedish words carved in stone in a group of people amongst whom I am the only Swedish speaker. Peter the Great, or Tsar Peter I, as he is known in these parts, stands upon a stubby plinth outside the War Museum by the battleground. Since 2009, there has also been a statue of Mazeppa in the city centre. There is a pleasant, well-ordered air to Poltava. My first visit here in the summer of 2002 was before the internet, Airbnb and sushi. We arrived in the evening and asked a taxi driver for tips on where we might stay. He drove us to a peasant woman living on an impoverished farm. Babushka and husband went out to sleep in the car in exchange for a little rent. At dusk, mosquitoes attacked in an untiring swarm, and in the stifling heat, we wrapped ourselves in blankets so that only our mouths were exposed, tongues moistening bone-dry lips and gasping for air. The persistent insects kept us awake until sunrise, when they suddenly retreated, leaving us to a dreamless slumber. The following evening, we strolled along the main street and fell into conversation with some new friends at a Georgian restaurant. The mood was upbeat, the vodka flowed, and a Georgian man insisted on finding out if we were circumcised. In the escalating drunkenness and noise, we never ascertained if this was a good or a bad thing. At any rate, it was important. Babushka's family might still be living in their cottage, and in that case most likely under identical conditions. But the youth hostel in which I have now ended up is brand new, and part of a modern infrastructure that has been rolled out in the country since independence. I discovered that the Georgian restaurant is still where it was in 2002, but that the street it stands on has changed its name from October Street, Joftaneva, to Conciliatory Street. Sobornesty, and the parallel Lenin Street is now called Cathedral Street. The street on which the youth hostel is located was once named after the Bolshevik Mikhail Frunze, but its signs now say Europe Street. IKEA has now established a presence in Ukraine, but long before it became furniture store Yusk, which has 32 branches around the country. Many flat owners have taken the Danes to their hearts. The heavy Russian and Byzantine style, with its thick curtains and dark gaudiness, has given way to pared-back Scandinavianism, with its light neutral colours and furniture with imitation oak melamine laminate. The youth hostel itself is the most exclusive I've ever stayed in. A considerate receptionist, a friendly atmosphere in the kitchen, my own room with an ensuite toilet and bathroom fitted out with perfectly white terry cloth towels and a paper seal around the toilet seat, and finally, to top it all off, a piece of chocolate on the pillow. Poltava is still a vibrant city, the central streets of which radiate out from the circular Corpus Park. It has a population of around 29,000, mainly Ukrainian speakers, and even the concrete suburb in which I initially considered staying possessed an atmosphere of benevolence and insouciance. In the surrounding oblast are two large iron ore mines, owned by the Swiss company Ferexpo. But production has shrunk over the years, and with it the chic city, which has lost 10% of its population since the new millennium. The city centre is home to a sleepless, youthful nightlife. Sobornesty Street is filled with the scent of vapes 
hookahs and espresso cafes, while hip-hop music throbs from clubs and bars. A new infrastructure is forming around new restaurants, many of which are neighbours to derelict buildings awaiting a visible wealthy owner. The city's building projects are legion and close to the Voskla River rise tower blocks built by Turkish capitalists. Festa and future, side by side. The history of the Battle of Poltava can be seen as a triangle drama between three armies. The rulers of two great powers and the Cossack leader Ivan Mazepa, whom the history books often ascribe the role of proud rebel leader from the untamed steppes. This is not altogether correct. According to the mythology, he had a relationship with the wife of a Polish noble, and when it was discovered, he was lashed naked to the back of a horse and expelled to the steppes by the Pole's henchmen. One can just imagine this dramatic ride eastward from perfidious civilization to eastern origin, hooves clattering in the night to the strains of a languid bandura. After this incident, Mazeppa is said to have been reunited with the freedom-hungry Cossacks, whom he later went on to lead in the struggle for national independence. It is a full-blooded story of potency, passion, and revenge. In fact, Ivan Mazeppa was a well-to-do traditional Polish diplomat, lettered, widely travelled, and linguistically talented. He was born in 1639 into a distinguished Polish-Lithuanian family and educated first in Kiev before attending Jesuit school in Warsaw, where he became the king's chamberlain. Mazeppa travelled around Western Europe and studied artillery in Holland. He eventually moved to the Cossack capital of Baturin in northern Ukraine, rose up the ranks and handled diplomatic dealings with the Crimean Khanate and Tsarist Russia. The Cossack kingdom was bisected by the Dnieper and there was frequent internecine strife. The Cossacks had shifting loyalties, for and against Poland, Russia and Crimea, and in the resulting mess, Mazeppa's diplomatic skills were extremely valuable. On one of his missions in Moscow, he made the acquaintance of Tsar Peter, and earned his confidence. In 1687, he was elected, with Moscow's support, hetman of the Cossacks on the eastern side of the Dnieper, the left bank. He tried, through diverse manoeuvres and pitched battles, to strengthen Cossack autonomy. But above all, he made sure to demonstrate loyalty to Tsar Peter, mainly, we might reasonably imagine, for strategic reasons. Poland was the arch-enemy. Himself, Ivan Mazeppa was hardly some wild rebel on horseback, but a plump, well-situated power broker. During his more than two decades as Cossack leader, he also became one of Europe's largest estate owners. The portrait of the warlike rebel on the Ukrainian ten note is of a scarred he-man, a poor match with the later Mazeppa portraits depicting a corpulent landed magnate and statesman seemingly more suited to life at a desk and conferences in his place in Baturin. So why did Mazeppa side with the Swedish conqueror against Tsar Peter in 1708-1709? The reasons were many. For one, the Swedish king was a luminary figure whose army had won a spate of victories in northern Europe for years. 
As a vassal state of the successful and remote country of Sweden, the Cossacks would probably have greater autonomy than under Moscow. For another, there was discontent with Tsarist policy. According to the alliance between Tsar Peter and Mazeppa, the Cossacks would be under the Tsar's protection. But in practice, the Cossacks had been conscripted to various pitched battles or recruited into hard labour in Russia. When the Swedish king and his Polish allies approached the Cossack state, the situation came to a head. Mazeppa requested military support from the north, but instead, the Tsar ordered Mazeppa to burn villages and towns in Karl XII's path. Faced with the possibility of strengthening his state and attaining independence, Mazeppa entered into an alliance with Karl XII at the end of October 1708 and, come the following spring, joined the Carolians. Other Cossacks demurred and pitched their tents with the Tsar. The lineup at Poltava on the 27th of June 1709 looked grim for Karl XII and his allies. The Russians almost outnumbered them two to one and had superior artillery. The Carolians were short of gunpowder, and much of what they had was damp. A stifling heat wave had settled over the area, and when eating and sleeping, the soldiers were tormented by swarms of fat black flies. Hetman Mazeppa was meant to supply the Swedes not only with men, but also with supplies and war material but the latter had been purloined by the Russians when they attacked Baturin and butchered its entire population. Karl XII had also been counting on the support of Turkey and the Crimean Khanate, but that too came to naught. And then, of course, there was the fact that Karl XII was shot in the foot while on a reconnaissance mission in Poltava, which prevented him from taking an active part in the fighting. Instead, he had to be carted around on a stretcher. Tis but a scratch. It was still the best army that Sweden had ever had. They had God on their side and were swept along by the conviction that they were better organized than the Muscovites and superior practitioners of the art of offensive war. The Swedes had planned to launch their attack just before dawn. The idea being for the army to pass between two areas of woodland and neutralize a string of Russian redoubts to then boldly attack the main encampment in the northwest. Shock, lightning attacks, and victory would favour the bold. However, the start of the attack was delayed when the cavalry lost its way. Dawn approached, and the Russians had spotted suspicious movements in the south. A few shots were fired, and the element of surprise was lost. The Swedes attacked at four o'clock. The first two redoubts were taken according to plan, it was at the third that things went awry. Historian Peter England describes the attack in his book Poltava. The battalions of Nerka Vermlanders stormed towards the large redoubt. The air was rent with the roar of musket and cannon, the bastion vomited projectiles. Through the smoke and fire, the men reached the ditch, and the edging Chevaux de Frise was hurled aside. The battalion welled down into the ditch. There, the avalanche of men met a solid wall of bullets and pelting rubble, dashed against it, and was washed away. The Nerka men recoiled in confused order. At the same moment, the lone battalion of Schmalenders, comprising the Yon Chopping Regiment, sent in to reinforce them, also attacked the redoubt. 
the fleeing men met the advancing and collided. The way forward for the Schmalenders was barred. Redoubt number three resisted, and the onslaught continued under an increasing lack of coordination. The lightning attack devolved into disorganization, fleeing Carolians and maimed bodies. What was to be a swiftly executed sideshow became a massacre that sucked in ever greater numbers of troops. Some Swedish commanders had not grasped the importance of quickly joining the main attack force against the Russians and stayed behind at the redoubts instead. At this point, the Russian general Alexander Menshikov started to dispatch cavalry from the main encampment against the Swedes. The battle intensified, with cavalry, sharpshooters, infantry, artillery, and the clashing of swords. Gunpowder smoke, bodies, and confusion covered the plains. By five o'clock, the Swedish troops had nonetheless managed to advance past the redoubts and force the Russians to retreat. But the losses were all but pyrrhic. By six, the Swedes were missing a third of their infantry, some having fled, others lying in a tangle of corpses on the battlefields. In what was meant to be the main battle, ten Swedish infantry battalions now faced 42 Russian. What was then commanded by the king was nothing short of a suicide mission. They were to be sacrificed for the sake of the Swedish state's duties, for the aristocracy's vast Baltic estates, for the merchant capitalists' fat profits. Their lives were like water. The time was about a quarter to ten, and the encounter was unavoidable. Footnote. This passage does not appear in the English translation of the book. Instead, England writes, Levenhaupt was not particularly sanguine. He later used these words to describe his assignment. Advancing with these, as one might say, poor innocent sheep to sacrificial slaughter, must I go to attack the whole infantry of the enemy. The time was a quarter to ten. The encounter was unavoidable. Blue-clad soldiers advanced on the encampment, and the Russians beat a tactical retreat. But almost directly, the Russian cavalry advanced, skirted the Swedish infantry's left flank, and attacked them from behind. Swedish cavalry came to their rescue in a counterattack. At this point, in a confusion of foot soldiers squeezed between Swedish and Russian cavalry, and after devastating losses, the Swedes' will to fight deserted them. The troops on the left flank turned and fled in panic, and the battle line broke. This was followed by retreat and protracted butchery. In the Yakovetsky forest, Karolians wandered about in an attempt to move south and regroup. A total of 8,300 men fell that day, a mere 1,300 of them Russians. Of Karl XII's 19,700-strong Swedish army, the 12,800 survivors were left to make their way back south along the Vorskla. Three days later, the Russian cavalry caught up with the Swedes, who capitulated, and in the king's absence, Field Commander General Adam Ludwig Levenhaupt signed the surrender at Perevolochna. 3,000 prisoners of war were taken to the east in a capitulation that is commonly regarded as heralding the end of the Swedish Empire. The king himself managed to escape with a small military contingent to a Turkish area in the south.
So Mazeppa's alliance with Karl XII dashed his dreams of a strong, autonomous state south of Western Russia. As so often in Ukrainian history, it led to subjugation under a powerful foreign nation. The Battle of Poltava was also an event into which different groups could mould their own histories. For Russia, Peter the Great's victory sealed its importance as a great power. In Moscow, Mazeppa was seen as the epitome of a traitor and the Tsar instituted a Judas order contemptuously dedicated just to him. A curse ritual was enacted by priests who dragged a Mazeppa effigy through the city before scorching it with torches in a church. For Sweden, Poltava eventually became a history lesson, so remote in time and space that it posed no threat to the Sweden that came to prefer interesting failures to bombastic tales of heroism. For Sweden, the battle is mostly remembered as a turning point in the war and the end of Sweden as a dominant European state. A historian once pithily described Sweden, with its population of only one and a half million, as a mighty tree with shallow roots. Its crown was impressive, but its trunk fellable by the slightest breeze. For Ukraine, Poltava was a loss yet nonetheless a celebrated dream of courage and the idea of a development that should have ended differently in redress. According to Ukrainian historian Yaroslav Ritsak, the Cossack narrative constitutes the merging of two cardinal ideas about national identity, one a struggle against foreign rule, the other a struggle against social subordination. This social-come-national trope is vital to the understanding of modern Ukraine, he reasons. It is the story of the oppressed and their longing for redress against their overlords wrapped in a story of a combative rebel army taking on foreign rulers. Ten days after the battle, the Tsar's troops caught up with fleeing Cossacks and Karelians on Ottoman territory by the River Bug. For the Zaporizhian Cossacks, there was no surrender document to be signed and no mercy. Those who had not yet crossed the river were surrounded by the Russians and cut down one by one. During his exile in Turkish lands, Karl XII tried to rule Sweden from a distance. After the skirmish at Bender, in which the Turks tried to kick out the valiant military commander, he returned to Scandinavia in 1713 for a few more years of military failures, while his enemies in the south mustered. Sweden's imperial ambitions and the war came to a decisive end in 1721, and Russia became the indubitable leader of Slavic Eastern Europe. For Ukraine's hero rebel Ivan Mazepa, Poltava marked the end of his time as Cossack hetman. He had also managed to make his way to Bender after the battles of 1709, but died that same year. Ukraine's fate was ever thus. Perhaps this is how its national anthem is to be interpreted. Yet have Ukraine's glory and freedom not perished. They never give up, but are forever being trampled into the dirt by whatever potentate happens to be thundering through the steps that day.